Hi guys, welcome back to a Life of Medications podcast. Again, we're here for part two with Caroline and Dr. Cliff Harvey. We got cut off last time because my internet connection ran out. I think we just got to the point of talking about ketogenic diet and mental health, and then it just went it just went mute. Yeah, um, so if we yeah, I was going to say if we could pick up from there briefly, but then segue on to where we wanted to get to last time on to talk about the mushrooms. Because um, you've got a great little piece of information course on mushrooms on Indeed. the site. And there's some very interesting little tidbits in there. Um, yeah, I think it's... So, yes. What's, what's re- Sorry, go, Keith. Go for, yeah. I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I mean, my, my personal experience with, with the... Cause, it's worth probably saying, and, and as you said in the last uh, video, it's, it's not a how to go foraging for mushrooms in the wild. It's, this is a background on what the commercially available mushrooms, how they can benefit you. And I've been taking Lion's Mane for a couple of years based around brain health. And, and what I learned was post-concussive <laughs> damage limitation having played rugby for too long and got too many bangs on the head and continue to play. Yeah. So I'm really interested. I, I, I wasn't expecting to, uh, to kind of read so much on it. But anyway, I've talked enough. Uh, how did you get into the mushroom world? How did you follow down that route? It's a good question because I had looked into it a fair bit in the early days um, of, of my clinical practice, right? So this is back in the, the 1990s and we'd sort of started to look into some mushrooms, but really only in respect to sports supplementation. So at the time, cordyceps was, was coming out, right? And so a lot of athletes were using that and there were, I guess, some suggestions that it can help to in, increase performance, you know, reduce perceived exertion, increase your um, sort of oxygen carrying ability, maybe increased testosterone, things like that. And so we were pretty interested in that initially. Um, but it was really only as a, a supplement. I wasn't really into fungi, mushrooms, mycology in the same way that I would be interested now. And then um, looked into it a lot more, particularly in the sort of traditional Chinese medicine realm. And maybe where some of these things overlap with um, traditional Indian medicine as well, when I was studying naturopathy, and this was again, you know, back in the probably early 2000s. And, you know, it was quite interested in them, but certainly not to the degree I am now. It wasn't until many years later that my interest was re-sparked. And it was really just, it was predominantly through, through Lion's Mane, right? There were a lot of influencers who were starting, and I don't mean, you know, your standard type influencer, influencers who are actually credible, uh, were starting to... Yeah really talk about the benefits they had experienced from Lion's Mane and sort of remembering some of the stuff I had read a few years earlier, looking again at the research, I became quite interested in it. Um, Like yourself, I've had a lot of concussions. I've probably had, I don't know, a dozen. You know, I was put out of rugby because of concussions. Um, I, I then took up boxing, which is the stupidest thing to do. Oh. <laughs> just been put out of rugby, um, took a few more hits to the head and eventually ended up in jujitsu and catch wrestling for that reason. So that I wasn't getting hit on the head anymore. Um, but I've taken a lot of, lot of damage, uh, had a lot of concussions and, and that will 
by virtue mean you've had a lot of brain injury, right? So I wanted to try it myself. I tried it, got very good results. Um, so that was really the lead in was lion's mane, started using that a lot with traumatic brain injury patients, um, post-concussion patients, whether that was from sort of car accidents or, uh, you know, top, top line footy players, uh, martial artists, boxers, all sorts and got really good results. Now we use that in combination with other therapies, but that sort of opened the doors to, to all of the other things as well. So I became more and more interested in mushrooms over the last probably five to 10 years. So and, sorry to interrupt you there, Cliff. I just wanted to ask you, um, can you tell us some of the benefits? You mentioned that you did feel some good results from using Lion's Mane. What were they? Yeah, no, I, it, that's a good question because I, I was just on a, a mushroom thread on um, Facebook just before and uh, a few people who were, who were, you know, considered sort of legitimate ex experts in particularly foraging mushrooms were saying that, well, a lot of the medicinal benefits, there's just not any evidence for that. And I, I disputed that immediately because although these guys are um, e experts in foraging and, and cooking mushrooms and things like that, they may not necessarily be aware of the breadth of research that's now out there. And so with something like lion's mane, Ericea marinaceus, we have a pretty good spectrum of research now where it starts obviously in vitro in the test tube in the Petri dish. Uh, we start to see cool stuff like it, it helps to regrow brain tissue, right? It helps to regrow neurons. But then we begin to see that translated through animal in vivo research where they, they do actually horrible kind of studies on, on animals, but they are very informative where they might make a crush injury, for example, on a, a mouse or a rat, and they'll crush nerves. And then they'll see that those that are supplemented with lion's mane, the nerves grow back way better, or they grow back at all where they maybe don't in other subjects. But then we start to see human research. And we start to see that this occurs in humans as well. And then it functionally translates, and this is when it gets really interesting, it's not just about, well, it helps to regrow some neurons, but does that actually have an effect for me? Well, yeah, the research tells us it does, where we have improvements in cognition and memory and, um, you know, improvements in performance, maybe through reduced ex perceived exertion, but may maybe also through other mechanisms as well. And there's a whole raft of health benefits. So in my experience, when I had seen all that research and I took it myself, I noticed that I did experience quite a big uplift in, in cognition, particularly, so focus cognition, um, the ability to think clearly and, and mood as well. And there is some good research now showing that it could be a, an effective treatment for depression. So there's quite a lot going on there. Um, but I think we're, when you see that breadth of research and you start to see more and more research emerging, you've kind of got the solidity there behind you that what you experienced wasn't just placebo. It's, it's probably a real thing. Um, so there, there are a lot of other mushrooms, obviously, in the, in the course. Uh, we, we focus on a select few because they're the ones with probably the most, uh, the, the most evidence behind them right now and they're the most commonly available. So we wanted to sort of make it easy for coaches, trainers, practitioners to, to understand a little bit more about those key fungi. So, you know, cordyceps, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, shiitake, reishi. Um, yeah, understand what, what those can be used for, what sort of, what they are first and foremost, what their benefits are, what the dosage is, and if there are any safety or contraindication issues. 
Um, so it really just allows people to be that little bit clearer about what's going on and how they might use these things for themselves or with um, clients or patients. And when you say that you noticed the uptake or the kind of increased improvement in focus, how long did it take? Like, cause it's, because I've taken it, and it's not like when you have an extra strong coffee, you feel the lift off. Well, that's what. What was your experience of it? Like, was it a few weeks? How could you measure that, folks? It's a good question because I'm not sure how I could quantify it, except that I, I notice an effect fairly quickly, right? So if I take a big dose of lion's mane, I notice that. But as you suggested, it's not the same as if you're taking you know, caffeine, you take a whole whack of caffeine and you're ready to go, right? You're fired up. Yeah. I find I take a big whack of lion's mane. I don't necessarily feel fired up, but I certainly feel very focused, very on. It's just that clarity of thought. And so, um, yeah. you certainly notice that. And I notice it immediately. A lot of people do now. Some people don't, and some people get more of a sort of chronic effect. Um, we've also seen some people are non-responders, but we also need to kind of flesh out some of the dose effects as well. And maybe people aren't always taking enough to, to actually see a result or, you know, there, there can be non-responders too. Yeah, I just took one of those sachets from whatever company was selling them. I've got I think over and I just opened up a sachet, poured in. Yeah, there's quite the, a few. I think... The Four Sigmatic, sorry. the, the yes. Yes. main coffee. <laughs> Yeah, see, yeah. That, and that's interesting because a lot of people get a, a pretty good effect from that. Now, obviously, it's going to be synergistic with caffeine, and some people will say, well, it's the caffeine content that's doing it. But the caffeine content of those sachets is, is actually quite low. It's only about 40 mix. So it's about, you know, half a cup or less of a normal cup of coffee. So it, it, the ca caffeine content's not that high. The lion's mane content isn't actually that high either. From memory, I think it's about 400 milligrams. So that's a sort of low effective dose. Once people start taking maybe straight lion's mane powders or tinctures that have higher doses in them, they, they probably see a much bigger effect. So, you know, I'll take a full teaspoon of full lion's mane mycelium and fruiting body powder. And so that, that's a lot more, right? That's about what, yeah. 20, 20 times more. No, it's not. Someone well, else did a lot the math more for sure. There's, there's not, yeah, ten, there's ten not times a lot, no sachets. No, yeah. about, about 10 times more, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I'm really curious about reishi mushrooms because they, when it comes to immune health, you hear it so much about reishi mushroom improving immune health. Can you maybe talk us or give us some insight into what you know about that? Yeah, so reishi, um, it, it's one of the, the most, it's certainly not the most common mushroom. Shiitake is the second most commonly consume mushroom after your sort of standard portobello, um, you know, calorie mushrooms, but reishi is, is a very common medicinal mushroom. And that's because it seems to have such a, a, a wide application. So we sort of, we, we simplify it down a little bit and you're, you're bang on a lot of those effects are immune, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. So it's sort of seen as being the, the, the really broad spectrum one that you can use for a lot of applications. So in terms of general health, um, a lot of people just take reishi as a general health type type tonic. So you might sort of consider, well, actually a, a guy who I follow, a researcher in the States called Bill Lagarcos, he, he um, I remember him tweeting quite a while back, he said, lion's mane for the brain and reishi for everything else. 
probably a, a, a pretty good way to look at it because it has so much application for just improving systemic health and particularly for improving immunity. We see a lot of those crossover benefits with other mushrooms though. So for example, even from your, your standard culinary mushrooms, you know, just your, your plain old portobellos, um, there are quite profound effects on oxidation inflammation in the body um, from other mushrooms like chaga, you know, again, big effects with, with respect to oxidation, um, anti-inflammatory effects, a, a lot of effects that are, you know, that, that seem almost unbelievable. And I wouldn't want to put, you know, my hat completely on them, but it, there are studies that show, for example, that you can somewhat correct lipids and you can correct some of the diabetic markers and things through application of this. Now, I wouldn't say that they're going to be a cure-all for anything, but certainly- in chaga. Chaga, yeah. But in terms of being a, a range of very nutrient-dense foods that have a whole range of other application as well, they're, they're very interesting. And the more you get into fungi, the more sort of fascinated you become by them because they're, they're very unique and very peculiar organisms. You know, they're, they're unlike anything else we, we sort of think about. Right, plants. Can you elaborate on, on that a little bit? I want to know what you mean by unique and amazing organisms. Well, they're, they're, they're so integral to ecosystems. And we obviously know that everything is, is integral to the ecosystems they're involved with, but we often don't think about fungi so much because we tend to think of them either as, you know, bad fungus, mold, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of breaking down rotting stuff. Or we think about them in the medical context, or maybe if we eat a lot of mushrooms, we think about them as an occasional food, but it's, it's quite limited. Once you start to, to look at mushrooms and, and investigate them a little bit more and start to notice them, you know, we've been out walking in the bush every day for I don't know how long recently, and uh, it's going into winter here. So we've had the autumn, we're going into winter. There's just fungi everywhere. Right, and they're, they're there to break down stuff. They're there to break down substrate, wood, you know, branches that have fallen off, trees that have fallen over, all these things. They basically break them down and return nutrients to the soil. They have symbiotic relationships with, with the plants that they're around. Um, they can communicate with the plants. Uh, they communicate with each other. They have these huge mycelial beds often that, that run underneath the ground. You know, the biggest organisms on the planet are, are fungi. I think they're, from memory, I think they're up in sort of Oregon and Washington State, type area. You've got these enormous mycelia beds that run underneath forests. And they're basically a, a single organism that's communicating across that whole uh, area. And so they're, they're very interesting in that way because they are so critical to, to, to what we need within ecosystems. Um, if, if any of the, the people listening in follow Paul Stamets, they'll know that he's done a lot of really interesting work, for example, with, with bees. Um, and, and this sort of hints as well at the, some of the, the, the potential health benefits because he found that, you know, the old idea of, of Winnie the Pooh finding... Um, you know, finding honey in these old trees that are hollowed out and whatnot. Mm. Those trees are obviously dying or they've got dead material and there's these fungi in there that are feeding on that. Now, people didn't necessarily think that this was a symbiotic relationship, but what he discovered, and I, 
I'm paraphrasing him here. So people have to go back to him as the primary source and see if this is all correct. But he discovered that there were antiviral compounds from the fungi that were involved with these bees that helped them avoid things like deformed wing virus and other um, viruses that affect bees. Viruses that are killing a huge amount of the world's bee population. And that would be devastating, right? If the bees are gone, the, the theory is that we don't have long to live because then all the pollination falls over, whole ecosystems start to collapse. And so there's the symbiosis between fungi and bees that helps to keep them healthy. And that's just, that's one of the reasons why that they live in such close proximity and they gravitate towards the same, um, same places. That's why bees will often use those. They're convenient, obviously, but there's also the, the co-opting there of those antiviral compounds from the fungi as well. Yeah, it's so crazy. It's so crazy to think. I didn't know uh, uh, Paul Stamos on Joe Rogan's kind of mind the, the interconnection between what when you go far, you go just out into the local New Zealand and just head out to the mountains or to the hills. No, we, we just uh, forage in local parks. If, if we do go further afield, then, you know, we, we might go for a look in, in the bush up north or, you know, on properties that, you know, family have. But lately, we've just been walking through local, uh, local parks, um, little bush reserves and things like that. And there's, there's a lot of, of fungi out there um, because... I'm not an expert in any respect in terms of the foraging and the, the fungal identification and things like that. Um, I, I'm learning as well, you know, so really my area and this translates to nutrition is, is that I am a researcher and practitioner and what I do is translational research. So that's why I created that fungal, uh, sorry, the functional mycology course was to basically help practitioners to understand the application of the supplements that they can buy um, that are pre-prepared and how they would use those. And that's why we specifically say, if you're going to get into foraging, you've really got to you know, know what you're doing and look into that a lot deeper. So I'm, I'm very, um, I guess I'm just a novice in that as well, but even at our level of skill, we can go out and find a whole range of edible mushrooms, just within a two minute walk from our house. Yeah, it seems like a very tricky enterprise to get into foraging. Uh, I read um, Michael Pollan's book and he yeah. was discussing foraging as well, foraging for mushrooms and how precise you need to be because it literally is like a shade of a color difference and you've stumbled upon a mushroom that might have some immune benefits to a mushroom that takes you on a very psychedelic trip or journey. Well, that's not a bad thing. I don't think I, I would be more worried about, you know, a death cap or something like that. Because, yeah, because, you know, um, and that's why we don't want to understate that danger because something like a death cap, you have one. And if you don't get to the hospital within, I think it's about six or 12 hours, you're in big trouble. You, you're going to die. Right? So there are mushrooms that, that are very dangerous. Absolutely. And they can look a lot like uh, either edible or psychedelic mushrooms in some cases. It's the, um, you know, it's often categorized as the little brown mushroom. 
is can, can be a real problem because there are a whole lot that people might want to take for psychedelic purposes, depending on the, the area they live in, whether that's legal or it won't get into that um, too much. But there, there are also a lot of edible fungi that can look very similar to, to very poisonous ones. Um, there are also ones that are, are sort of poisonous, but are considered to be the most deadly. And in fact, they're not. Um, like the, the Amanita muscaria, which is fly agaric. You, you know the one I'm talking about? It's the classic no. toadstool. So red, yeah. usually red. It can be orange or peach and all sorts. The Super Mario one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Red with white <laughs> dots on it. Now, th those can kill you, but you, you need to eat quite a lot. If you eat just, let's say, one, you'll probably get very sick. But they are a traditional food and a traditional medicine. And you just need to know how to prepare them correctly. Um, so this is where it can become quite complex. And I think with the exception of a few people, most, most people who forage for mushrooms that, that I know or know of, they typically tend to know very well a few types or a few types from their local area that they know they can identify with certainty. And if there's any lack of certainty whatsoever, you just don't put it in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. That seems yeah. like a smart endeavor. Um, I was going to say to you, moving away from the foraging aspects, if people really wanted to get into understanding how to use uh, mushrooms in a supplemental way, what would your advice be to them? Do the course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it, it, it's, it's not super, it, it's not very taxing in terms of the amount of information, but what I've done with that course is tried to provide exactly the amount of information people would need to know to safely and effectively use those common supplemental mushrooms. And we will be adding to that over time as well. So there are mushrooms now that are starting to emerge, you know, within supplements or you're starting to see a slightly wider range of mushrooms available. So we're going to keep adding modules to that. So the next one will probably, probably be maitake. Uh, we may add Amanita muscaria. We may add some of these other things as well over the next few months. So it's a really good intro at least. And if people want to use supplemental mushrooms or mushrooms in a supplemental way, it's a really good way to cut through the, the BS and just find the, the research. The only other way I would really suggest to do it is, is to jump on, you know, jump online and get into the medical scientific databases and find all the research that I've already found for you. Yeah. So I've, I've got a question in relation to COVID because obviously we're on Zoom right now because of this. So it's yeah. a it's a hot topic right now about <laughs> finding things to uh, improve your immune health and to make you physically and mentally stronger so that if you do get sick, you're okay. What would you recommend in that regard in relation to mushrooms? How could people use mushrooms to, say, improve their immune health? I think, yeah, in terms of supporting immune function, obviously we, we don't really have anything at the moment that ha has been proven to help with COVID specifically, but we, don't, we almost don't need to worry about that specifically if we're thinking about supporting our immune function, right? And I think that's what's been lost in a lot of the conversations is people are sort of saying, well, you know, this, ha this particular thing or that particular thing hasn't been proven for COVID. And my position from the very beginning is 
yeah, we know. And as soon as there are things that are proven for that, that'll be great. But there's nothing wrong with being as healthy and resilient as you can be. So I guess the question is, can mushrooms and fungi be part of that? And I'd say absolutely, because we have enough evidence that they can help to support immune function. And in that respect, I'd probably say reishi is, is really one that, that stands out for that. And because it's, you know, it's got a relatively, well, a, a very good safety profile. It's been used for a long, long period of time. It's generally, generally regarded as safe. Um, and it doesn't seem to have some of the, the fish hooks that maybe some of the other mushrooms do. So I'll mention one of those. Chaga is also very good. You know, it's got very good anti-inflammatory, antioxidant properties. There's evidence that it can help support immune function as well. The problem with chaga is if people are taking relatively high doses, it's also the highest, the food that we know of that's highest in oxalic acid. So oxalic acid is those, you know, oxalates. They're linked to um, kidney stones and, and things like that. So you wouldn't want to take high doses of chaga for a long, long period of time. For a short time, it's great, or small doses, not a problem. Um, but yeah, reishi stands out as one that you can probably use a little bit more consistently, and it has really good health-supporting properties. But on that note, I tend to... I'm into them, right? So I have all sorts <laughs> in my cupboard. And I will pretty much either cycle through them so that I get a broad range of, you know, mycological compounds that are known to support health. Um, yeah. Or if I have a specific outcome that I want at that time, I'll take that mushroom. So if I'm feeling a little bit run down, you know, sure, I might take reishi, chaga, shiitake, or all of them. Um, if I'm feeling like, you know, maybe I want to support my gut a little bit more, turkey tail um, is sort of considered one of the, the gut supporting mushrooms um obviously for my brain lion's mane so you know it's not really accurate to say that they're only for a particular organ but if you are targeting it a little bit or for an organ or system if you're targeting it a little bit it means over time you end up getting a, a broad cross-section of of benefits from a range of mushrooms um is there any contraindications in taking the mushrooms together so, for example, uh, after I did your course, I, I got some reishi mushroom and chaga, and I was trying to make some elixirs. Is there any issues with mixing them together? Is there any contraindications for people? Not as far as I know. There, um, there is a, a case report that we're investigating now of some... Um, some damage to, to, to blood cells with high dose reishi use in a cancer patient. Um, but, you know, I really don't think using normal supplemental type quantities, there's any problem with mixing and matching a little bit. But of course, you know, whenever, whenever we take anything, if we're taking much higher doses than are recommended or we're taking a whole range of things together, it probably is worth doing a little bit of extra checking. Um, but off the top of my head, I certainly can't, I can't think of any contraindications to, to mixing and matching the mushrooms, the common supplemental mushrooms that is. Of course, I think people need to be sensible, irrespective, particularly you, you hear things with vitamin C, about taking vitamin C IVs, and you hear some of the research where people are taking very, very high doses, and there's obviously contraindications for that. So. 
yeah and that's the that's one of the um that, that's one of the areas i think where I think more and more we're starting to see that there is a bit of a shift away from very high doses of specific things. You know, um, this is actually interesting in respect to mushrooms too, because a lot of people have focused on the beta glucans in mushrooms as being, you know, these, these active compounds, but they're only a very, they're a tiny fraction of what is in any given fungus, right? And so we're really not getting the full spectrum of benefits if we're just focusing on that. Kind of like if we take a, a vitamin E capsule and we're only taking um, alpha tocopherol, we're probably not going to get the best effect because people then tend to megadose on this one particular form out of eight forms of vitamin E that we use in the body. And that's been shown to have negative outcomes in studies. Whereas when people are looking at a, a more like a food matrix, and being replete in all those things we get from food, then we see better benefits. And typically in a lot of the research, what we're really seeing is the, the outcomes from things like vitamins and minerals are more related to helping people to be replete or helping people to be at a good functional level of that particular vitamin and mineral rather than a much higher dose than is normal giving a particular benefit. You know, look at zinc as another great example, particularly with respect to, say, where we're all at at the moment and wanting to support immunity. Zinc is critical for immunity. But is megadosing zinc effective? Probably not. Like, maybe in some certain cases, but probably the bigger issue is that, like, in the country that I'm from, New Zealand, 25% of people are, are not getting enough zinc from diet. 40% of males don't get enough zinc from diet. So if we just take a cohort of people from the normal population and give them zinc, it's highly likely that a fairly large amount of them aren't getting enough zinc in their diet anyway. You're probably going to see a benefit. Plus, many of them are not getting what is optimal for not just survival, but you know to thrive. And so really, I think what we're moving away from a lot and seeing more and more of the research is that massive doses of particular things are probably less important on balance than making sure we're replete and getting a wide range of, of interesting compounds, not just the, the essential vitamins and minerals, but all those secondary nutrients we might get from, you know, brightly colored berries and richly colored vegetables, um, you know, fungi, weeds, you know, I, I forage for weeds as well. And they're, they're fantastic and very nutrient dense. That's actually, that was my first foraging experience. So when, you know, when we were kids, we used to just eat, you know, weeds because our nan picked them out of the garden. And so I sort of learned to identify a lot of plants, edible plants. Now I can walk around my garden and basically get enough for a salad, just picking up weeds and, and things you wouldn't expect. Fuchsia flowers, daisies, um, magnolia flowers, Kenilworth ivy, dandelion, puha, you know, all various types of sour thistle. It's just, there's so much. Shook <laughs> them down on a plate and just dig into them. <laughs> Pretty much. My dog so, is going to be so happy anything? to hear that. What was that, Keith? Do you matter salad? Sorry, you frozen just there. What did you say? 
uh, needs in flour. Like, do you put it in a blend? I'm sort of, I'm partially picking up what Keith's trying to lay down here. Yeah, a lot of it is, um, you know, a lot of those weeds are, are basically like salad greens, right? In fact, the, the original mesclun salad was based mostly on dandelion. So it wasn't, wow. wasn't rocket, or as they call it in the States and Canada, arugula. It was mostly dandelion. Um, you know, dandelion and, and weeds of that type, what we now consider weeds of that type, were an incredibly common vegetable for people back in the day. Now, they're not as popular as other things now because they, they can be quite bitter. Um, but as part of a mixed salad, they're fantastic. You know, dock grows everywhere, and that's, I think, better than spinach. So your new course, Cliff, <laughs> will be about weeds. <laughs> Thinking about it, yeah. Um, it, it seems a really big topic because there are so many things that, you know, are eatable. There's also obviously a lot that aren't similarly to, to fungi, but we'll probably take the same approach. And, you know, I'm fully serious about this because it's not really about trying to cover everything. It's more so, it's almost like an expedition from my front door, maybe to the local park and picking out all of those things that are edible. And a lot of them can be eaten with, with very little risk and are very easily identified as well. Yeah, well, do you know what's really interesting? Um, when, and I know this, people might not like to hear this, but when, uh, when my dogs get ill, I always see them go outside and eat the grass um, and uh, eat maybe some plants. And it, it's always interesting you hear that old wives' tale, like, oh, they're, they're eating the grass when their tummy's upset. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, a lot of people think that, that is, you know, they'll, they'll eat grass or they'll eat weeds purely to, to, to make themselves sick or purely to get a bit of roughage so that maybe they can pass things easily. That's only, I think, part of it. And like, I'm not a veterinarian, I'm not an expert in animal <laughs> nutrition at all, but I've you know, had dogs my entire life and it's really interesting when you observe them that they, will, they won't just go out and eat any old thing. They'll sniff around, they'll look, you know, they'll basically figure out and they'll find specific things and eat them. And in you know, observing dogs over a lifetime, I've certainly noticed that it's, it's not always just to throw up or to, to pass something. I'm sure that they're going out to find some extra nutrition as well, because dogs are obviously, they're omnivores. They're not obligate carnivores like a cat. Um, they're predominantly carnivorous, but they do eat some vegetable matter as well. So they might eat some tubers or some, you know, berries in the wild, all that kind of stuff. And they will eat some vegetable matter as well. And I'm sure it's not just for this old idea of fiber and roughage, which, you know, we kind of get tarred with as humans as well. I get um, quite frequently attacked on, on Twitter for suggesting that people should eat vegetables. I know that sounds really weird, but there's a lot of people out there who say, well, vegetables are just water and fiber and they're useless. Just stick with your meat kind of thing. And I don't think that could be further from the truth. I mean, I think most of us accept that vegetables are good for us, but that the main thing is that we're getting, we're getting chemical signals. I think we talked about this last time, getting chemical signals from the environment, which help to, to switch on processes on a cellular level, because we're recognizing what happens in our environment, not just by being directly exposed to it 
through, you know, sight, smell, the sounds we hear, the temperature, all that kind of stuff, but also the chemical signals that we're taking in by ingesting it as well. Sorry, Keith, you're breaking up a little bit. I think Keith's, Keith's the, the passive observer tonight. <laughs> I think Caroline's got to be the... Um, the, the I don't to be to be honest with you my uh, my internet's not going so well I got cut off at my house so I'm sitting in a cafe now <laughs> it's looking pretty good from from where I'm yep. sitting so all uh all zoom and internet things are in trouble these days um so I wanted to, to ask you I know this is a little bit of a controversial topic and um, it's related to, to mushroom uh to mushroom supplementation as well Recently, so I know that psychedelics have had a very, very bad uh, introduction to the scientific world in the 60s and 70s, and now their reputation is changing a lot, and people are a lot more interested in it. Is, do you have any information that you can impart to people about maybe the difference between supplemental mushrooms and psychedelic mushrooms, and is there any crossover? Is there any health benefits to taking, to taking the other side? Yeah, I would say that the introduction to psychedelics um, in, in the sort of 50s, 60s, but before criminalization was probably on balance pretty positive. And it was really the, it was the geopolitical environment which really put paid to that. So unfortunately, a lot of very promising research was, was stopped. And so that research has started to emerge again. And there are people doing research on, you know, the, the let's say the classic psychedelics, particularly psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and LSD, obviously. And that there are, are, you know, there's emerging research showing that they, that potentially is very effective for a, a range of outcomes. So we have societal research, which suggests that people who have had a psychedelic experience are less likely to be involved in criminal behaviors or sort of, you know, socially aberrant behaviors, you know, going to jail or um, being addicted to, to drugs. You know, it seems like a bit of a contradiction, but these are some of the outcomes that people see. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of emerging research showing that psychedelics could be very useful for intractable depression and bipolar disorder and post-traumatic stress. And All particularly depression. I was reading some of the John Hopkins research on psilocybin and treating depression. Um, and obviously you look at some of the other mushrooms as well, and they're, they're there for depression and for anxiety. So they have similar benefits, but obviously very, very different physiological effects on the body. Yeah, so there, there certainly is... A lot of application for the psychedelics and there will be a lot more research on that. I think we also need to consider that there were literally thousands of years of, of sort of case evidence and a, a traditional medical history using those things. You know, LSD is a little bit of a, a new guy because it's synthesized predominantly, but the precursors are found in plants and they were probably used to some degree. Um, but obviously there were other things that we use much more like your psilocybin mushrooms, uh, Amanita, Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric, um, you know, ayahuasca, which contains DMT, 
um, peyote, San Pedro, cacti that contain mescaline. So there were a lot that we used for, for various purposes and they're, they can, they're called entheogens for that use, right? So the, the entheogen is kind of the, the medicines, particularly plant medicines that would expand the mind and allow people to achieve their human potential. So there was a lot of philosophical and, and religious stuff wrapped up around that, but really it was about helping people to, to have a different perspective, change their perception and basically open up their minds and experience more. So now we're taking that into the medical realm where people are beginning to, to look at the research on that and seeing that yes, it can actually help for a lot of things. Now we obviously need to be aware that in most places it's still illegal to do that. Um, and that maybe the intention that has been taken into those things hasn't really been conducive to the, the best experiences, right? In a traditional setting, you would have a strong intention and you'd be thinking about using that to connect to something maybe greater than yourself, to have some insights, to have some epiphanies. Whereas if people just take a whole bunch of mushrooms and go to a nightclub, I'm not sure they're going yeah, to necessarily experience the same stuff. And so that's well, where- I think that's where context Sorry, and environment are, are really important. Exactly. And that's, I think, the, dif the difference between taking something recreationally and here in this context, we're talking about taking things medicinally or for healing or therapeutic purposes. And I know in the research that I've read with John Hopkins, they were really, really stringent on set and setting and having a therapist present and having a particular scene and a proper dosage and proper outcomes yeah. and they were doing a lot of questionnaires before and after and really assessing the impact and assessing the experience and having somebody there to kind of walk them through that whole process but how yeah. do you how is your experience of say using because if we think about mushrooms as a collective there's such a huge range and we just spoke about it very briefly going from some of the mushrooms that can uh that can cause death as opposed to some of the mushrooms that are just used in normal food purposes and then there's other mushrooms that are used medicinally for supplements like lion's mane and reishi and now we're moving into a very very different type of mushroom that has a very different experience so in that whole spectrum um what's your perspective on that i know that's a very big question yeah i, I think that obviously any of the ones that we can safely ingest to some degree i think from my point of view the outcome is is the same now, what I mean by that is I'm a very big advocate for going beyond health, right? And that might seem strange because I'm a health researcher. I'm a clinical nutritionist. Um, I research things that will benefit public health. But more importantly, it's about helping people to achieve their human potential. So a good example of that is the neurogenic, so the, the basically the the neuron enhancing neural repair effects of lion's mane are probably quite similar in many respects to the, the same effects that can be achieved through psilocybin mushrooms. The difference being that you don't trip out and that that's compelling to some people, you know, the, the trip is compelling to some other people, but you can still exercise some of the benefits without necessarily having that other experience. But by by improving cognition and clarity of thought and, you know, reducing depression and things like that, you're more likely to achieve your human potential. And that's a little bit distinct from health because a lot of times nowadays, 
we cling to this idea of health and it's very arbitrary as being the end goal. But that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because health as an end goal is completely abstract. You know, if you could wake up tomorrow and be completely healthy and in, in the sort of the way that you think about health, would that mean that you would be happy? And would that mean that you would actually be fulfilling your human potential? Of course it wouldn't, because what, what it would provide is just a, a platform from which you could actually do interesting things, you know, exercising your creativity, your passion, your purpose. And so I think that health is critically important to that, but there's also more. And that's why uh, I think a lot of the research that I do in the coming years is going to be much more around those ideas of human potential and helping people to really thrive and have epiphanies and breakthroughs. And so, yes, it may cross over into some of those other areas as well. Um, you know, particularly with uh, psychedelics and entheogens. Uh, in fact, I will be writing a course this year on the medical application. So basically looking at the medical research that's been done on entheogens. So practitioners can understand a little bit more about it. Yeah, there's a lot of emerging research and it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to read because you see, is it Timothy, Timothy Ferris, who was the Harvard professor in the 60s, who was also researching psychedelics? Uh, and, Tim, um, Timothy Abby, Leary. Timothy Leary, that's it, yeah. Um, and he really took the research in one particular direction. And now you're seeing this huge wave of, um, particularly with microdosing as well, microdosing psilocybin. <laughs> Um, and then some of the other, and I think that is, is it London? They're doing that research in London about microdosing. Um, anyway. Yeah, there, there's a lot. And, there, you know, there's been some good case evidence compiled over the years. Um, there are some very, very legitimate researchers who, who know a, a lot about this stuff and have done a lot of work in this field. Um, you know, a guy I think that's fascinating to listen to is um, Dennis McKenna, who yeah. is Terence McKenna's brother, but he's a, a researcher, you know, a, a doctor in um, ethno, ethnobotany and eth ethnopharmacology. So he's basically looking into those traditional, traditionally used entheogens and what their applications can be. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating because a, a lot of the, the drivers now of the, the research, but also the public awareness, they're very credible and legitimate people. Whereas even probably 10 years ago, you and I would not have been discussing this on a podcast not that is, is geared towards the mainstream. But now people just accept this as being, well, this is something that could really be interesting for people's health and more importantly in the long term for their human potential. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to ask you because earlier we were discussing about uh, about dosing and we were talking about dosing in terms of lines and about taking high doses and the, the idea of finding like kind of a little bit of a balance. Um, and then moving over to psilocybin and instead of taking those huge doses about the microdosing aspects of it, is there any... Um, health or performance related benefits to microdosing microdosing of psilocybin yeah in particular so we discussed the, the benefits of microdosing or actually normal dosing of reishi and lion's manes and yeah. what about the inverse obviously people take massive doses of psilocybin and go on a journey but if they were to microdose so that journey would be eliminated is there yeah. any performance or health related benefits to that 
Probably. I mean, there, there are a lot of, like I say, there's a lot of case evidence. I don't know if there is a huge amount of like published trial evidence, if there is any on, on microdosing at the moment. Um, I'd have to look into that and see if there is, but there, there's certainly a lot of case evidence that people are experiencing pretty profound benefits from, from, from microdosing. And I think I remember uh, Paul Stamets talking about this sort of as if you, you could take a normal dose of lion's mane or a micro dose of psilocybin and you probably get quite similar benefits. Now, I, I, again, I might be paraphrasing that and it may not be 100% correct, uh, but that was sort of the, the what I took from, from one of the conversations with him that I listened to. And that kind of makes sense because a lot of the, the, the neurogenic and, and clarity and cognition type benefits are probably going to be similar between a normal dose of lion's mane and a, a microdose of something like psilocybin. Okay, so going back but to... But they are also different. So there will be differences yeah. in how they act as well. So I was just going to steer away from, uh, from the psychedelics and go back to, to normal mushrooms. What is there any other advice or uh, suggestions that you can have for people um, if they were interested in exploring, exploring medicinal mushrooms? I know in your course, it talks a lot about cognition and performance. Yeah. So there's really in terms of the benefits, they, they cross over a lot between the mushrooms too. And that's worth, people remembering because it's not as if you know even though we simplify a little bit and say well you know we simplify to, to make it easier for for us to understand and to know what we want to take in a given moment or whatever but we also need to realize that it's a lot more complex than that so when we say things like lion's mane for the brain we also need to consider that lion's mane also has a lot of the other benefits that other mushrooms have in terms of reducing oxidation and inflammation and maybe having potential in the realm of cancer treatment and things like that as well. Um, so there is going to be a fairly broad crossover. And that's why I think we, we can mix and match a little bit, you know, change what we're taking periodically. I also think that's probably a, a good thing in terms of long-term safety, because although they, they do appear to be really safe on balance, taking, a, let's, you know, taking something every single day of your life may not be the best thing to do. So occasionally mixing it up, you're going to get different compounds that are going to be beneficial. Um, one thing I'd probably say is for people to be aware of the provenance of their of the mushrooms they're taking. So where are they from? What do you mean by that? Okay. Yeah, where where are they from? How are they grown? What's the substrate? And and can you be certain of the quality? Because Fungi can be very good accumulators. They can be very good accumulators, particularly of heavy metals. And there is some suggestion, and, and I don't know, I don't know whether this criticism is valid all the time, but there are enough experts in mycology who have said that some places in the world, maybe you wouldn't want to get your mushrooms from. So some of the Chinese grown like mushrooms, for example, may not be that fantastic because of the heavy metals or other contaminants in the groundwater and the mushrooms could potentially be accumulating those. So, um, you know, we are seeing, you know, we do a bit of work with a, a company in Australia that, that grows really good quality mushrooms and they grow it on, you know, sustainable substrate and they've, they've got the highest 
you know, quality standards, it's all sustainable. So we kind of know the provenance of the stuff that we're personally taking. Um, so I think people should just look into that and make sure they're taking a product that is, you know, of a high standard, high quality, um, you know, if it's not growing in those types of conditions, at the very least, it should be tested so that it doesn't have all those heavy metals or other contaminants um, in it. Is there any products that you would recommend in particular for people? Um, well, well, there are some that I I use. I need to disclose my conflict of interest, though, because um, we were using certain products in, in practice here. And because they were difficult to get hold of, we started distributing them in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. I work with Four Sigmatic, um, Lifecycle out of Australia, and they make a really cool ranges of, of pure mushroom powders and mushroom tinctures that you can take. So they're very easy to dose because it's basically just an eyedropper and take a few, take a few drops. I nearly put that in my eye. Um, when I said <laughs> eyedropper, you don't want to do that. Um, and obviously the, the, I haven't used it myself, but I hear really good things about Paul Stamets, uh, brand as well. Okay. And I would, I would expect for his product to be really good quality. Keith, were you going to say something? I saw you moving and nodding there. Am I even in, I've, I've had audio held. I feel like I've just been a, <laughs> a listener. Am I back in? You're still there. <laughs> he, he looks almost like a 16th century painting or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sort of frozen most of the time. It's pretty cool. And I'm reading I've the Wolf listen to, to trilogy at the moment, so it's very apt. Um, yeah, no, look, I love the, I, I figured you guys can't hear me, so there's no point in the flow. No, we could hear you were there. I just, I thought you, you kept freezing uh, a little bit. So I was like, I can't hear you. Uh, yeah, I hear everything, but you guys are frozen every now and again. I loved, I really like what you said about the idea you could wake up tomorrow in optimal would that be the end goal i think that's a really important uh concept for whatever kind of health you yeah. achieve i really like that like what what can you do then yeah and that, that's why the you know the, the latest book i wrote was called the credo right and it wasn't about nutrition actually a lot of my books aren't about nutrition they're about they're, they're about those things it's about finding passion and purpose and creativity and the reason is that when we become so hung up on these these relatively arbitrary ideas of of what we should be particularly with respect to health which is now so tempered by what we see on instagram or facebook you know we're we're basically trying to live up to these these facades of what we consider health to be but none of it's real you know it's not intrinsically driven and so one of the big focuses in my clinical work and in my teaching is to also be talking about that stuff you know what's your why what are the most important things for your life um you know what are your values you know these are really important things and then within that subset of things what can you then do that is creative and purposeful and passionate to help you live a really good life in the research setting i'm really trying to push towards not just always looking at pathology 
you know, not just looking at how do we treat this disease or how do we treat that disease or how do we get people back to normal, mundane, boring, on the treadmill health, right? How do we go beyond that to, to feeling amazing, to being amazing, to doing amazing things? Because I really think that has to be the, the outcome we're all looking for. It can't be any more about just creating people who are healthy enough to go and work in a factory and be, you know, some normal member of society. I think we need to go far, far beyond that now because we need people being happier, healthier, and creating really interesting solutions to the problems we have in the world. Now, the more people we have doing that, exercising their creativity, the better off we're going to be and the more likely we are to actually get through a lot of the stuff that we see around us, whether it be pandemics or global warming or anything else. So um, I know this is a, I love the notion of what you yeah. were saying about trying to be the best version of you and really having uh, passion and purpose and that encompassing human health and good health. Exactly. Um, so when you mentioned things about Instagram, one of the things that I struggle with a lot is really finding out what the truth of an information of something is, um, especially. So I was doing a little bit of research earlier about medium chain triglycerides and uh, like coconut oil. And uh, you find so much information on it. And half of the information is very positive. And then the other half is, is like talking about ill health and, and things like that. And so this is just one particular topic, but when it comes to nutrition, there's so many different opinions. It's so hard to sift through and to find out what's real. What yeah. would your advice be for people who are trying to navigate that? Because you've got Instagram on one hand, you've got um, just news articles that are very superficial. And then you have research that can often be paid for by certain uh, organizations that have their own intentions and their own motives at hand so how do people navigate finding good health and finding good information that really supports that genuine need for making people healthier that, that's a really good question and i think that one of the big challenges we have is we now live in the post-truth era right where it's it's really not so much about the evidence, it's, a, it's about people's beliefs and that begins to temper what conclusions they draw from the evidence. And so it, it can be very difficult. It's, it's really difficult for people out there on the ground because it's basically, it's a minefield. So I think, I mean, I would really like to see there be a, a growth in scientific literacy, but I don't know if that's gonna happen. But I think if people can, can at least try to understand that little bit more, that'll be really important. Um, in the absence of having that maybe taught at schools and things, again, it's kind of difficult, but then we need to look at, well, who are we getting our information from? And there are more and less credible sources. I think if, if people are reading articles on, on scientific concepts, like, you know, medium chain triglycerides, they want to figure out, are they actually healthy for me or is coconut oil actually a, a beneficial thing or is it a negative thing if you're reading information on that the the best place to look is, is obviously in the scientific databases but they can be very difficult to to understand you know not everyone's going to be able to read 
easily some of those journal articles. So the onus falls on scientists, I think, to some degree to start to demystify what they're putting out. So as an example of that, I've had a lot of conversations with my colleagues about writing scientific papers more simply. Now, not to the point where they're not going to do the job because you need to use certain jargon and, and conventions and things like that. But sometimes we fall into the trap of being too smart. We'll use a word that no one but a handful of people in the world will understand. Like, and it's basically only a group of say 30 people who do the research that we do are going to understand that. That's ridiculous because if there's another word that can explain that as well to those people, but also to a million people out there, that's the word you use. So I think we need to start to simplify how we communicate the science. I think there needs to be proper translation of research into mainstream articles. The problem at that point is that a lot of journalists don't understand the science well enough, so they're not translating it well. A lot of researchers have biases where they will basically promote a conclusion from a paper, which isn't really what the paper said. It's because it fits with their bias. So how do we get through that? I think it comes down to trying to sift through the sources of information you get find credible, pragmatic people in particular areas and follow them because you know they're going to be looking at the evidence at least more objectively and trying to put that out there. The, the more pragmatic people are, the less they're going to be extremely controversial. You know, uh, people would say that I was controversial because I was using low-carbon ketogenic diets back in the 90s. And that's what I did my master's and doctor and all that kind of stuff in. But if anyone reads my articles, I guarantee that say, it's a pretty pragmatic guy because I'm not saying that keto and low carb is for everyone. What I'm saying is that there are certain applications for which it's really good. And there are also people who thrive on high carb diets and there's all the stuff in between. And a lot of it rests on how your body works, what your requirements are, what your health conditions are, but also what your psychosocial stuff is like. What behaviorally can you stick to? What culturally is appropriate to you? All these various things, right? So it becomes very much, a, there's no clear answer, but there are certain things that we all agree on. Like in nutrition, everyone agrees that we should eat more unrefined food instead of ultra processed food. Almost everyone, with the exception of carnivores, the carnivore diet crowd thinks that we should eat get lots of vegetables, right? So there are a lot of things that really fit. And therein lies the, the commonalities that people get results from. Now, there's a lot of people who are talking about that stuff, and they also understand that there, there's going to be some minor differences, but they're not clinging to those because there's no point battling. So find credible people and follow those. And um, just, I, I guess, be wary of people who are making grandiose claims or claiming that one diet fits all or that one particular food is going to kill you. That was probably a long-winded yeah. answer. It's a difficult no, no, question to answer. Great, it's a great answer. It's, it's just, you're right, it's a minefield. It really is a minefield. Um, yeah, it's almost like these days you have to peel back three layers to really understand, oh, okay, is this unbiased information or is this opinion information? Um, and that's yeah, like, what I find more and more these days. 
that there are people out there as well that I think uh, are worth following. You know, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for the guys behind mass. If people are into fitness or strength conditioning, hypertrophy, the guys behind the mass research review, um, you know, Eric, uh, Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Eric Trexler, Dr. Mike Zerdos, um, Greg Knuckles, those guys do a fantastic job because they're extremely pragmatic and they're always evidence-based and holistic. Um, you know, there's other guys out there like Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition. Um, great podcast, great articles. I don't always agree with him, but hey, it doesn't matter if I don't agree with him because I know he's putting out good information. And that's the thing, you know, a, a lot of the people who are pragmatic, evidence-based and holistic, they don't agree on everything, but they understand why they're having a disagreement. They're not so stuck in their ideas that they can't see, oh, well, I can see why you think that. I disagree, but that's cool because we agree on most of the most important stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I find quite interesting about this is obviously where, well, Keith and I are a little bit educated when it comes to these things, but for most lay people, it's such a minefield to be able to navigate. Um, so it's, yeah, it's challenging. It's very challenging. So appreciate all your, um, your good efforts and recommendations. Well, we, we can all do better too. You know, I, um, I do a little research review that I put out every month that I've been told by a few of the people who subscribe to it that, dude, sometimes it's just too heavy. So I need to put layers in. You know, there needs to be this layer where everyone's going to understand it. And if they want more, they can go that little bit deeper. So you kind of need three layers to things. But it's important that the most relevant information is able to be translated through every layer in, in, in the way that people are going to understand. And I, I guess something here that's really important as well is I think it needs to be it needs to be translational. In other words, there needs to be application, right? So you read a lot of things that say, Oh, this is really bad, or this is really good, or this is the, you know, the science behind whatever. And often it's not anyway, but then there's no take home message. There's nothing that you can actually do with that. And that's what I think is critically important is we can debate till the cows come home about various aspects of the science behind nutrition. But if people are still left not knowing what to do, we're wasting our time because all we're doing then is, you know, self-flagellation. We need to be, yeah. we need to be helping people. And the only way you help them is to give them simple things that they can actually do and do right now and continue to do that will improve their health, their happiness, their performance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. On that note, I think, uh, Cliff, thank you so much for your time. Keith, you're still so tired out there. Um, <laughs> how can people follow you um, if they have any questions or if they want to follow your social media? Easiest uh, way to find the various things I do, including all my social, is just to go to cliffharvey.com. So that's just my name.com. And there you can find the links to my various social um, and to my monthly research review and to all the um, member on the articles at the site. You can view all the member on the articles anyway. There are just limited to time. So you can read one premium article a month. Um, so if you want to keep coming back, you can get it all. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And uh, Keith and I have both done some of your courses and they're amazing. So we're a little bit of a testimonial there to some of the great information you're putting out there. So thank you for making things a bit clearer. And people can obviously um, do, do those courses through you guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, awesome. Keith, do you have anything to add there? 
of your song, Cliff. Really appreciate it. Okay, amazing. On that note, now that Keith is frozen, <laughs> let's uh, let's head off. Thank you so much, Cliff, for everything. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye.